Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. This week I was thinking about two important and common and related questions. First, what does it look like to be a good person? And second, how do I become one? And in the 21st century, I did this week what most of us do. I asked Google, what does it look like to be a good person and how do I become one? So I asked Google the first question, what does it look like to be a good person, Google? And this is what I got. And as you can expect, I I found quite a few suggestions. It was not silent on the answer to that question. The New York Times, for example, reported that a good person is one who is kind and attentive. One who asks hard questions and holds themselves accountable. It's a pretty good answer. Continue to scroll. Psychology Today told me I must have wisdom. Uh Uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. Wisdom, self-control, a love of justice, and exhibit courage. Now my personal favorite, probably because of its simplicity, was from Urban Dictionary, which basically claimed to be a good person, I must be happy. And I must promote happiness, and I must not get in the way of anyone else's happiness. So you can see how happiness and goodness were closely tied together there. I like that definition. But as I continued to go through Google, the the criteria just mounted and mounted and mounted to the point where I realized, well, I am not qualifying for goodness here. And so I asked the follow-up question, how do I grow in goodness? How do I get there, Google? That's the next question. And again, no shortage of information was given to me, but some of his suggestions you might, you might recognize. I was to embrace change. That's how to be on route to being a good person. Be grateful. Take care of yourself. Compliment yourself. I like that one. I tried that one for a full day. I felt great. (laughs) Ran out of things to say after a few minutes, but kept on repeating them. Let go of anger. Give back. Shop local was one of them, came up. (laughs) Be yourself, set goals, be forgiving, and keep learning. Now, in all seriousness, I have no intention this morning of speaking disparagingly of people apart from Christ, thinking about goodness, and trying to aspire to that goodness. I think that is God's common grace on display. That people realize that there is goodness out there, and they want to define it, and they want to run toward it. Praise God for His common grace. What I am concerned with is that those of us who belong to Christ, following them in their thinking about what goodness is and how to get there. That's what concerns me. People who belong to Christ that go to Google and not God to understand what goodness is and how do we pursue goodness. And so the goal for this morning is to remind us of how God and not Google defines goodness. What does it mean to be a good person in God's sight and how do we take steps toward that. And that's what we're going to see from Colossians chapter 3 today. Let me read the text in its entirety, and then we will walk through it together. The first 17 verses of this chapter. Look with me. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. God, what does it look like to be a good person? Well, according to Colossians chapter 3, the text we just read, what it means to be a good person in the sight of God is to live a holy life. That's what it means to be a good person. It's not just self-control, a love of justice, being happy. Those things are not in and of themselves inherently sinful. But when you ask God and not Google, what does it mean to be a good person? The answer comes back, the bar is much higher. It is holiness, to live in holiness. See, once we have believed in Jesus, we are to grow to resemble Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, anyone who claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. We become increasingly like the Lord by his power and for his glory. And you probably picked this up as we read through that text a moment ago, but Colossians 3 uses the imagery of getting dressed. Right? When you got up this morning, when you got ready to come to church, I'm going to guess that when you got dressed first, you had to take off your pajamas and then put on what you're wearing now. You all look great, by the way. Wonderful. But you started by taking something off and then putting something on. And that is exactly how Paul here describes the Christian's pursuit of holiness, of goodness in God's sight. The process always starts with undressing. To put on holiness requires we first put off wickedness. Verse 5, again, look at the text. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. This is a strong command. This is Paul telling the Colossians and us by extension, kill it all, kill it now, and kill it dead. Get rid of all of it. You've got to remove yourself from sin. Get rid of it all. 
He says, think of every part of your body, every facet of who you are as, as incompatible with sin. They do not go together like, like water and oil. They are separate. Every part of who I am does not go with any part of sin. And he gives that little list there. And obviously that list isn't exhaustive, but it's enough that each of us can feel the conviction of not measuring up, right? We read it and say, I'm doing pretty, oh, maybe I'm not doing so hot. Paul says Christians would have nothing to do with these acts of rebellion. We'd say, why? What's the big deal? Well, verse 6 and 7. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. See, the Colossians, they needed to remember that before they were children of God, they were children of disobedience, and they looked a lot like their dad. They walked in that disobedience. And because of that, they were under God's holy wrath. But then verse 8, but now you also put them all aside. To put them aside, this is the same word that Luke uses when writing in the book of Acts to describe the stoning of Stephen. You may remember this account, but it says in Acts chapter 7 verse 58, when they, that is the people who hated Stephen, had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. To really get the good wind-up of their stone-throwing arm, right? They laid their garments aside. That's the same verb that Paul is using here in Colossians 3. Like a garment, they are to undress from that old self. And then Paul follows that up with another list in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. See, well, the list in verse 5 that we read earlier, it's concerned with sin that we do. This list is calling on sin that we say, things that come out of our mouth. And Paul says, take it all off. Get rid of it all. Consider it dead to your earthly members. If someone falls through the ice into the frigid water, and they're rescued. They're pulled out of the ice and pulled to shore. One of the first things that needs to happen is to get those frigid clothes off. Because it's actually that, that freezing garment that's actually killing them, keeping their body at, at hypothermic levels of heat. You have to take that clothes off, and then you put something warm on. It's no good to throw a warm blanket on top of someone who's still dressed in those frozen clothes. That's the same thing that Paul's saying here. Get those old clothes off. They're killing you. It does no good to throw holiness on top of the sinfulness. You've got to get rid of the wickedness. Now, let's be very honest with ourselves, especially in the West, where we don't face a whole lot of persecution as Christians, despite what some will say. In the West, where we're like that, there are a lot of Christians and a lot of churches who take a very casual approach to sin. It's not that big of a deal. They might even redefine some sins. They might marginalize or minimize some of the sins because it's just not that big of a deal. Or maybe they understand rightly the doctrine of eternal security, which if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that we teach. Once you are in Christ, you are kept in Christ in spite of yourself. He will see you to the end. But some people hear that and they say, nice, now I can do whatever I want. I can live like the devil because I'm connected to the Son. And Paul has very strong words elsewhere in the New Testament for that. It says, may it never be. Don't live like that. We need to take sin seriously. We need to, even though we're saved. Why? Well, for one, when as believers we continue to walk in unrepentant sin, we are dragging the name of our Savior through the mud. That should grieve us. 
who belong to him. That should be motivation enough to put away the old self, to get rid of sin. I don't want to bring defame to the name of Christ. I don't want that. But more than that, we need to understand that when we continue to walk in sin, it can also bring divine discipline. We don't talk about that a lot as a church. That the Lord is a loving Heavenly Father, and loving parents discipline their children, seeking to reform their actions for their good. And God is no exception. In fact, He is the gold standard of parenting. If you've read through 1 Corinthians lately, you will know that the church in Corinth was a bit of a train wreck, a bit of a mess. They were believers, but they were living in all sorts of sin. And multiple times the Lord says through Paul to that church, I now have to discipline you. In fact, sometimes they took people out of the church and, and the Lord put them to death, brought them home as believers. You're coming home to me because you're doing damage to my name. You're doing damage to my church. I'm just going to bring you home. I'm going to take you home. 1 Corinthians 11, they're at the Lord's Supper, which we just celebrated. And Paul says, this is why some of you are sick, speaking to believers, and some have even fallen asleep, died, because you are coming to the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And in the context, I think he's saying, the symbol of the Lord's Supper is we are united in Christ, we are united together, and yet they were hating their brothers and sisters at the same time. Unity, unity, I hate you all. Unity, unity, I can't stand you. And the Lord says, I'll just take you home. This is why some of you are sick and have even fallen asleep. I'm disciplining you, trying to reform your character for your own good and the good of my church. Now, we want to be careful. Anytime we're with a brother or sister in Christ and we hear that they have the sniffles or they're sick, we want to be very careful not to say, there's sin in your life. I know the Lord's disciplining you. We don't want to do that. We don't know. I don't know that. But we have to admit that it's a possibility. The Lord is very clear. There is discipline that comes along with sin. So not only does it shame the name of Christ, but it brings divine, it invites divine discipline. We need to take these clothes off. We need to take sin very seriously in our own lives, in our families, and in our church family. It's a big deal. As Christians, we need to understand that we've been freed from both the penalty and power of sin. And so we need to live like it. And the first step is to take off those sin-soaked clothes. Now, the second step is to get under the warm blanket of righteousness. Now that we've been rid of those frigid clothes, we're to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Look again at Colossians 3, verse 9. Paul continues, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, namely Christ. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Positionally, the Colossians were in Christ by faith. They're called saints. They are holy ones because they are hidden in Christ and Christ is holy. But experientially, they needed some work. They were holy in Christ, but their lives did not look so holy. They were like pardoned prisoners. You know, bail has been posted. They're free, but once in a while, maybe for old time's sake, they spend a night back in the slammer, just because. That's how they were living. We've been freed from sin. We've been freed from the penalty. And once in a while, they go back into the prison cell just for fun. Paul's saying, don't do that. Put on the new self, a self that is being continually renewed, constantly renewed in the background. And the basis for this renewal is a growing true knowledge of Christ himself. Think about maybe you had a childhood hero growing up. Maybe it was a, 
an athlete or a musician or an artist. They just wowed you with what they could do. And as a child, you maybe had a poster of them on your wall or something like that. And the more you learned about them, the more you were amazed about them, the more you wanted to be like them, right? The more you wanted to emulate their life. How much more for Christ as Christians? We see his righteousness. We see his beauty, and we want to be more like him. It's a true knowledge of Christ himself, our sufficient creator. A knowledge that brings holiness of living because we're increasingly dazzled by his holiness. And a knowledge that brings unity between believers. There's no Jew or Gentile in that. There's no slave or free. We are all united. The illustration is often used of a hundred pianos, some out of tune, but they all get tuned to the same fork. What happens? They all get tuned together by virtue of being tuned to that same fork. In the church, we are all very different, aren't we? Very different. But we're all tuned to that same fork, which is Jesus Christ, his holiness. And as we become more like him by the power of God for his glory, we actually become closer together as well. There's unity in there also. We need to understand that basically every problem in every church, every conflict and split, virtually every tension and disagreement, almost every disgruntlement and dissatisfaction, all of it is a wardrobe problem. Every single bit. Ultimately, what ails the church is believers who are dressed in the wrong clothes. They're freezing to death and either don't know it or don't care. They have not put off the sin and put on Christ-likeness. Off with the old and on with the new self, that which is ever being conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 12. So as those who have put, so, for, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Notice that. That is true. Positionally, we are holy and loved of God. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Notice how polar opposite this list is from those that we read previously earlier in the passage. Because this is Christ's character being displayed that we are putting on. A character that is antithetical to sin. They don't go together at all. Just as someone can't be hypothermic and toasty warm at the same time, so we can't be dressed in the old and the new at the same time. If you have verse 12, for example, if you have put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, you can't also be characterized by verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. You can't be doing both of those things at the same time. You can't be bearing with one another and forgiving one another and dividing up the body of Christ. Those two things don't go together. Verse 14 is so beautiful, such a capstone. Beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect gorilla glue of unity. That's my translation. The perfect bond of unity. That's what holds us together is Christ's love. It is the supreme virtue that brings us and bonds us together, and in it, there is no, verse 5, immorality, impurity, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. See, a group of well-dressed Christians, properly dressed Christians, is a beautiful picture. In fact, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's a plural, your. In your, y'all's hearts. Here, in all of us, let it rule here, to which indeed you all were called in one body, and be thankful, all of you. 
Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you all, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, when believers are dressed properly, it's as though the character of Jesus bubbles up out of us and on to one another. We can't keep it in. His peace, his unity, his truth, his worthiness rising up and out in love, thanksgiving, joy, and encouragement. I pray for a lot of things for this church family, and I desire a lot of things for this church family. One of the things I pray for, and I hope this is in line with what the Lord wants for this church, but one of the things I long for is to continually grow to be a singing church. A singing church, not just because that's what we do on Sundays, and we're supposed to sing these hymns. That's not why. Because according to this text, the singing comes out of, it bubbles up out of a conformed knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more we understand his beauty and who he is, the more I'm taking off the old self, putting on the new self, you can't close my mouth. Give me songs to sing that glorify Christ, and they will bubble out of me. My prayer is that, and we sing well as a church, I want more. Maybe I'm, I'm a glutton. I just want more of that. I want to lift the roof off this place every single Sunday. Why? Not because that's what we do on a Sunday, but because we are so much like Christ that we can't keep it in. And we were reminded here, it's to one another. Not only are we singing to the Lord because he's worthy, and he is, but we're singing to one another. We're, we're teaching one another with those songs. Songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. These are, it's a teaching ministry, the, sing, the songs we sing. I'm under no delusions that people walk out of here humming my sermons. I know that. I know you've forgotten what I said by the time you get to your car. I understand that. I trust that the word is working anyway, and it has having its sanctifying effect. But we do leave humming the songs, and they are truth-filled. That's why we are very careful with the songs we sing, because we want good songs in our mouths as God's people. So that we, we bubble up in joy and thanksgiving and unity. We are in unified voice singing the greatness of Christ. That's the goal. I pray that we'd become increasingly so a singing church. An old professor of mine used to say, I can tell a whole lot about a church by listening to them sing. I walk in, stand at the back, I know a whole lot about that church. Man, I want to be that church. When people come in, even if they don't understand, what are they singing about? These words are weird. It doesn't bother me that they don't understand. What I'm concerned about is God's people being so overcome with the beauty of Christ that it comes out of them. Verse 17. The last verse of our passage, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus for the, for the fame of his name, for his glory, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of a church like this? Who wouldn't want to be part of a church where its members are committed to pursuing goodness God's way? Not perfectly, but steadily and intentionally. Remember he said forgiving one another? That means that we're not doing it perfectly. He actually says you have to forgive one another as Christ forgave you. That means that we're, we're messing up. We're offending one another. That's where the forgiveness comes in. A mark of a church is not perfectness, it's forgiveness. We are going to mess up as we fumble toward Christ-likeness, but we forgive one another. That is the goal. We want to pursue that. And this is a church that worships well. It's a church that serves as an incubator for Christian growth. It's a church that God uses mightily. Okay, so God, what does it look like to be a good person? He says, live a holy life. That's what it looks like to be a good person in my eyes. Take off the old, sinful, felonious, factious self and put on the new, unifying, and Christ-exhibiting self. 
Now, I doubt that there is anyone in here who has walked with the Lord for any amount of time that doesn't want that. That's not the issue, right? We all want that. We all want to walk in holiness. We all want to be good people in God's eyes as he defines it. And that leads really to the second question. Okay, I've got my list of what it looks like. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Live holy lives. Oh, okay, God. That's, that, that's easy. Check. Live a holy life. It's overwhelming. So how? That's the next question. How do we become that? How do we grow in goodness? How do we grow in holiness? Well, for this, we have to jump back to the beginning of the chapter. The first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. We've been shown the what, that is, what it looks like to be a good person. Now we need to know the how. How do we get there? Verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, verse 5, take off the old. Therefore, put on the new. It comes out of verses 1 through 4. So God, how do I become a good person? One who lives holy? And the answer comes, look heavenward. Look up at Christ. Take your eyes off of your personal goodness, or lack thereof, your sanctifying habits, or lack thereof. Take your eyes off of your moral victories, or lack thereof. Take your eyes off of yourself if you are want to pursue holiness. Take your eyes off of yourself and instead look up. Look at Christ. Look heavenward for the rocket fuel needed for pursuing holiness. And when we look up to Christ, what's there? Well, just briefly, we look heavenward at our death in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. The death we deserve to die because of our sin, Christ died for us. And by faith, we are hidden in him. We hide that death of being separated from God. We don't have to experience because Christ did for us. And we look heavenward and we see our resurrection. Verse 1, therefore you have been raised up with Christ. Just as by faith we are sharing in his death, a death we deserve, he didn't. So by faith we share in his resurrection, one he deserved and we didn't. We get to share in that and it is a, a reality right now for those in Christ. And finally, we look heavenward at our glorification. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There's a time coming when we will be like him. We labor today. We struggle with the wet clothing of sin. We do that every single day. It's not a matter of just, okay, it's off now. Now I'm putting on holiness. It is a day-by-day battle, isn't it? To take off sin, to put on righteousness, to put on holiness. But there is a day coming when that struggle will be gone, when we will be like Christ. So he says here, look heavenward at your glorification. It is coming. And all of this is as certain as Christ himself, Paul says. Our death, our resurrection, our glorification, our, how does he put it? Are hidden in Christ, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. By the way, why is he seated? Because his work is done. Saturday, Saturday morning, before plopping into the easy chair on a Saturday, I do my chores first. I like to cut the grass, do all that stuff, get all that out of the way, and then I sit down. It feels so nice because the work is finished. Why is Christ seated at the right hand of God on high? Because the work is done. It's finished. Because his work is finished, because he is exalted, and because he is returning. Paul says to the Colossians, grab those realities, think on them, meditate on them, talk about them, laugh about them, anticipate them. 
Fill your minds with these rock-solid truths and live your life in light of their certainties. So God, what does it look like to be a good person? Live holy. God, how do I do that? Look heavenward. Look at Christ. Stop looking at yourself. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that we grow in Christ the same way we are saved by Christ, by looking to him in faith. We don't grow by reading more of the Bible necessarily, or praying more prayers, or attending more services, or doing more things. We grow in holiness by looking to his holiness. We fill our minds with the greatness of Christ, with the immeasurable kindness and grace he has, is, and will show us. We become obsessed with his sufficiency and his beauty. And then we take off the old self. Then we put on the new self. But we have to have a big, beautiful vision of Christ. That is the fuel for pursuing sanctification. Maybe you've come from legalistic backgrounds. We've talked about that in Colossians already. You want to be more holy? Here's the list of things you need to do. If you miss some, start it again. That is not the Christian way. We are saved by grace through faith. We grow by grace through faith, by looking at Jesus, being amazed at how awesome he is, and then saying, how could I, how could I participate in sin? If he's like this, he's my savior. I'll spend eternity with him. He's amazing. How can I keep sinning? That's the proper motivation. I look at him, I say, you are just so awesome. I want to be more like you. I want to put on holiness. Help me do that. That is the motivation for growing in Christ-likeness. We are to look to Christ to become more like Christ. We are look to Christ to live like Christ. Stop looking to the world or your favorite teacher or your church or your family or yourself. Look to Christ to live like Christ. Remember that one of the themes of Colossians is that Christ is enough. He is sufficient. He is sufficient for our salvation. He is sufficient for our sanctification, for our pursuit of holiness. He is enough. Look to Christ to live like Christ. So what does this look like for us today as we go forward into this week? How do we live in this truth? Well, first, maybe you're here today and you've never actually trusted Christ. How do you look to Christ to live like Christ if you've never trusted him? Maybe you're here today and you have been grinding it out in life. I want to be a good person. Here's what Google says. Here's what the world says. I want to be that. And it is a lot of work. And some days, I think I get a passing grade. Other days, not so much. And the crazy thing about our culture is you, let, you wait five years and the goalposts have moved. Now this is what it means to be a good person. Now this is what it means. Now this is what it means. She's like, oh, I'm exhausted. I can't keep up with what a good person is and what I need to get there. Forget it. I'll just live any way I want. That's why I like the Urban Dictionary definition. Just happiness. I can change that at the same time, right? But maybe you're here today and you're just tired of that grind. I'm tired of pursuing a happiness that seems fleeting and a purpose that seems ungraspable. I, I don't want that. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you goodness. You're not good. Welcome to the club. You're not good. People are not good. But Christ is good. He is the good one. He says, hide in me. I will give you my goodness. That is the message of the Bible. And how do we hide in, hide in him? By believing in him. That's it. We believe in him. I believe Jesus is who he said he is, the son of God. I believe he did what the Bible says he did. He died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. Lord, I'm believing that now. I don't even know all the implications of that, but I'm believing it. At that moment, you are hidden in Christ, and in spite of your lack of goodness, guess what? You are good. 
You are holy, and now it's a matter of pursuing holiness. So to look to Christ, to live like Christ first, you need to trust Christ. Maybe that's you here today. And if that's so, I would love to hear that that changed for you today. You pass from death to life in a moment. You believe the gospel, you hear it, and you stop laboring. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. Run to him. Now, for some of us, we have trusted in Christ. But if we're honest, when we look to Christ and live like Christ, we kind of see a stick figure. It's not very good art. It's kind of like what hangs on my fridge right now. You know, it's not, it's not winning any medals, you know. It, it's there. I don't really have a good view of who Christ is. I belong to him, but I don't know a whole lot about him. You're, you're saying glory is coming. You're saying I am hidden in holiness. You're saying all of these wonderful things. I, if I'm honest, I don't really know what all of that means. You're saying, look at the beauty of Christ. I'm saying, I guess, I, I know I belong to him, but I don't have a vivid picture of him. For you to look to Christ, to live like Christ, maybe you need to invest in learning who this Savior of yours is. Maybe, maybe that's what me, that means for you this week. That you maybe open up to the Gospel of John. Say, Lord, show me who your son is. I want to know this one to whom I belong. Or maybe you look to the book of Hebrews. You just want to see how Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than everything. Maybe you reread Colossians. You see, Christ is sufficient. And you ask the Lord, Lord, show me your son. I'll be honest, I repent. I've, I've been neg- negligent up to this point. I know I belong to him, but I just haven't gotten to know him. Friends, the more we know Christ, the more when we look to him, we are dazzled by him, the more it fuels our pursuit of holiness. Now, for most of us, we have a decent idea of who Christ is. We belong to him. It's not a perfect knowledge, but we're growing every day in our understanding of who Christ is. So what does it mean for us to look to Christ, to live for Christ? Well, most of us, I suggest, are probably creatures of habit, either by uh, force or by choice. You know, our our weeks are pretty uniform. We know what the day holds. You know, as we close this morning, I want to encourage you, if that's you, to think of your normal routine for a moment. You wake up in the morning, you do certain things, you know, you go to work, you do—you have a kind of a routine. Ask yourself now, when would you say in the day your mind is most attacked? That, that is most pulled down into the muck and mire of this day rather than up in Christ. Remember, verses 1 through 4 is, set your mind on things above— Pursue those things. Everyone has times in the day when we are most pulled down into the dirt. Maybe that's during your breakfast news scroll. Goodness, I don't know how you can consume news without having your mind pulled down into the worries of this world. Maybe that's for you. Maybe you have a morning class with an antagonistic philosophy professor, and you leave those classes just dragged through the mud. Your mind isn't on things above, that's for sure. It's a battle in those times. Maybe it's over lunch with gossiping work friends or during that always coming afternoon bout of fatigue. We all have that? Like, oh, that 1 p.m. post-lunch. And you feel that you're being attacked. Your mind is being pulled down away from Christ. Who knows what it is? Or maybe it's the times you binge on social media or your evening downtime with Netflix where you let your mind just race. And that's when it's pulled down away from Christ. Where are you most commonly vulnerable to have your gaze taken from Christ and to the cares of this world? I want to encourage you this week, even as you think about it, where is that time during the day? This week, find a way to remind yourself at that time each day to look up to Christ. I'll tell you what I've done this week. I was struggling this week. How do I help myself to lift my mind to things of Christ, to pursue that, so then I can start pursuing godliness, so I can take off the old self and put on the new? For me, it's evenings. That is the toughest time for me. That's when I'm most tired. So I'm, I'm most ready to let my guard down with my mind and just kind of shut up, go into screensaver mode, you know, where it kind of bounces around. I just stop looking at things. 
So I've actually set a silent alarm on my phone right now that pops up at 8 p.m. each evening. About the same time my kids are down, I'm ready to shut my mind down for the day, and the, the silent alarm just pops up and says, look up, Josiah. You're about to go into this dangerous time. You're about to go into this time where the world is going to pull your mind down away from Christ. Just remember, before you go into the rest of the evening, look up to Christ. Look up to him. Look up so you can live like him. Maybe for you it's a sticky note on a coffee table where you sit, or a note on your bathroom mirror. Whatever the case is, find a way to combat those moments with a reminder to look to Christ, to live like Christ. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that we pursue holiness, and we're called to that. Be holy, for I am holy. That stands. We want to live holy lives. But we don't do it by white-knuckling our way toward it by disciplining ourselves and willing ourselves to kill sin. That is not the Christian way. We look to Christ. It's already been accomplished. We're amazed by him, and that fuels our pursuit of holiness. God, what's a good person look like? Live holy lives. Oh, that's a daunting task. How could I possibly do it? How is that not just a weighing guilt on my shoulders? Because I look in the mirror every day, and I say, you're not holy. You're not holy. Well, how do we do it? We look heavenward. We look to Christ, the Holy One, in whom we are hidden, and we run to him because it brings him glory. Let's pray together and ask for his help to do just that. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.